As Ben said, it's good to see the presence of all that are here, especially our visitors this morning. We're glad that you're here. We pray that you'll find the service this morning edifying and strengthen you in the most holy faith. This morning, I want to speak just a few minutes on the conquering king. So studying through Psalms, I ran across Psalms 110. That'll be the main text for the lesson this morning. We will go to other verses, but most of them are on, will be on the screen. Uh, we'll be speaking from or reading from King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different version, it may read a little different. But what's interesting to me is uh, that as, a, as you read through the book of Psalms, in Psalm 109, David is praying for God to curse his enemies. And uh, it's pretty serious. As David begins to talk about his enemies, he prays for deliverance from his adversaries. He tells God how they lied about him. They speak evil hatred. They spew hatred uh, about him. They oppose him without a, a justified cause. And they return to his good deeds with evil. And he's praying to God to deliver him from these adversaries or these enemies. And then he goes further. And he says, not only deliver me, but I want you to curse them. I want you to, to bring justice down upon them. And so he prays for this justice from God to deliver this punishment upon his enemies, to condemn them, to make their children as beggars, to take all that they have and to show no mercy upon his enemies. He says, even finally in that chapter, he says, I want you to cut off their family and their children and their descendants so that there is no remembrance of them on the face of the earth. And as David prays these things, I think he begins to understand in maybe an instant of a moment that maybe he, he's going a little bit overboard. If he remembers who he is and the mistakes that he made and the fact that he needed mercy too. And so he makes a few statements in Psalms 109, verse 21. He says, but do thou for me, O God, the Lord, for thy name's sake, because thy mercy is good, deliver thou me, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. You know, a lot of times when we pray to God because we're, we're feeling oppressed or maybe we feel like the world is against us, we need to stop and realize that we've received mercy from God and we need to realize our position before God, that we're poor and that we're needy also, that we make mistakes and that we don't have the whole picture in our knowledge like God does. And so I think he begins to think about this as he prays to God for the things that he's wanting to come upon his adversaries. And then he ends the chapter in chapter 109 like this in verse 30. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yea, I will praise him among the multitude for he, stand, he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those that condemn his soul. And here's what the reality of David's position is. David begins to realize that it's more than just the physical deliverance that he needs. It's deliverance for his soul. 
You know, a lot of times we, are, we feel oppressed because of the physical things in the world. That's the things that we see, the things that we feel physically. And the important thing to God is the soul, the eternal part of mankind. And then David, in chapter 110, sings a psalm that I think is so amazing because in seven verses, that's the whole chapter, seven verses, he lays out the whole scheme of God to take over the world, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to separate out those who would obey him from those that wouldn't, and to show that Jesus is the conquering king. These seven verses are prophecy of Jesus Christ. I'm sure that he took some comfort as he sang this as a king, but he was prophesying about the coming king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that is Jesus Christ. And so let's read that, and then we'll go through this chapter, <clears throat> and we'll talk about what these things mean. In verse 1, it says, a Psalm of David, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou. In the midst of thine enemies, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord, thy, the Lord at thy right hand shall strike through the kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with dead bodies, and he shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way, and therefore shall he lift up his head. So in these seven verses, the greatest picture of the conquering king, how he would come into this world, God would lift him up high and to exalt him to the highest place, and in that highest place, he would be king and rule the world and he would conquer the world. Now, a lot of times when people read this passage, they're thinking of a physical kingdom. And to this day, a lot of uh, religious people will teach that Christ is going to come again and he's going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem in a physical kingdom and take over the world. Brothers and sisters, when the Lord comes again, it won't be to sit on a throne in Jerusalem because that would be downgrading. He's sitting on a throne in heaven. He is currently reigning as king of kings and lord of lords over his kingdom. And so when he comes again, it will be to deliver his kingdom back to God. And so let's talk about a few of the things that's mentioned in this passage. One, it mentions that he was sit on the right hand of God. That means he is exalted. He is lifted up to the highest place the word exalted there means to be lifted up or elevated to the highest point or summit that can be lifted or that you can be placed at. Now then, it's said that this is, Psalms 110 is the most quoted passage uh, or chapter or psalm of the New, that the New Testament, in the New Testament. It's quoted <clears throat> some 22 times in different parts or different phrases that are used. Even Jesus himself refers to it on several occasions, the apostles on other occasions. But parts of this particular passage are quoted some 22 times in the New Testament. 
And Acts chapter 2 is one of those places that the apostles quote out of Psalms 110. It says, For David is not ascended into the, the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. That's that first passage that we read out of Psalms 110. But notice, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so the apostle is pointing out to the people at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. He says, David is not ascended into heaven. He's not exalted. You see, King David, as great as he was, his tomb is still on the earth. His body is still in there. God did not resurrect David <clears throat> from the tomb, but he exalted Jesus Christ. And even David said that. But he saith himself, that's David, said himself, the Lord said unto my Lord. And he's referring to Jesus Christ. And then the apostle goes on to assure Israel. Let Israel know assuredly, that's without a doubt, that Jesus, may, God made Jesus both Lord and Christ, he exalted Jesus to the highest place, to sit on the throne in heaven, to give him the dominion and kingdom and glory that he deserved to rule the world. And so David, when he wrote psalms, when he sang psalms, he was talking about Jesus Christ, that he would be exalted to the highest place to sit on the right hand of God, and he is made Lord and Christ, that's Master and Messiah, Savior of the world. Now then, when we talk about him being exalted and David still in the tomb, you see the disciples of Jesus saw him rise up into heaven in the clouds. In Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, as the disciples were watching Jesus at his, what we call his ascension, it says, and when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Now imagine the scene. Here was this Jesus that you had studied with, that you would walked with, you would eaten with, you talked with, and you learned from for three years, and, and he died. And you thought it was all over, and now he's resurrected. And at this point, he's leaving again. How frustrated the disciples probably were as they watched him go up in the clouds and the men in white that stood nearby said, you'll see him come again, just like he went into the clouds. Now then, as human beings, we go, well, you know, he disappeared in those clouds and, and you can't see past the clouds. Sometimes he gets cloudy around here every once in a while and you feel like, you just can't see very far. And I'm sure the apostles were thinking that as he disappeared in the clouds. But D Daniel gives us the vision of what happened on the other side of those clouds. And so we can know what happened on the other side of those clouds. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel had a vision in the night. And he had this vision, Daniel 7 verse 13 and I saw in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man come with the clouds of heaven and came unto the Ancient of Days, that's the Father. And they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. 
And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. And so Daniel prophesies what happened on the other side of those clouds as Jesus ascended into heaven. We see the heavenly vision that he came up to the Father in the clouds. And the Father gave him dominion and glory and a kingdom. He set him on the throne. Now then, it mentions dominion here, and dominion means authority. And notice what Jesus said as he was ascending into heaven. Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And so Jesus confirms Daniel's vision that he saw, that he was given dominion, that he was given the authority over all the kingdoms and nations and people. And Jesus confirmed that very thing. Notice in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. And it says, They sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. That's the glory. He's worthy. We're to give him honor. And then it says, For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation, and hath made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. That's the kingdom. So Jesus was given a dominion, he was given glory, and he's given a kingdom. The kingdom are those who are redeemed out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. Just like Psalms, uh, he, he tells us he's given this dominion at his exaltation. Out of every nation, kindred, tongue, people, and nation, they are redeemed, and the redeemed make up his kingdom. Those people who reign with him. Now it says, we shall reign, with, we shall reign on the earth. You see, if you're redeemed today, if you're redeemed by the blood of Christ, you're reigning with the king. You are in his reign, his kingdom. And so Jesus is exalted into the heavens and is given this dominion and glory and kingdom. He said unto my Lord, sit thou in my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. So not only did he reign, but he said, your enemies, I'm going to make them your footstool. That's their position toward Jesus. His enemies will be squashed under his feet. There he will stand on his enemies. Now, who are the enemies of Jesus Christ? In John chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is the enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So I will tell you this morning, there are enemies of God. And, and he's reigning until his enemies will be made his footstool, until he conquers all the enemies. Now, who is the enemies? Well, those enemies are friends of the world. Now then, someone says, well, I thought we were supposed to be friendly to the world. I thought we were to go out and show Christ's love to the world, and we are. Matter of fact, the Bible says that Jesus was a friend of sinners, 
But the friendship that Jesus had with sinners is different than the friendship of the world that it's talking about here. The friend, the word friend in James 4, means associate or companion with. That's what it means. It's, it's associate or companion with. Associate is someone who derives a benefit from that companionship. Now then, let me just give you an example. Walmart has associates. <laughs> we used to call them workers back when I was a kid. You know, you're some kind of checker or you were a stalker. Or, but they have associates. Associates are someone that is attached to an organization. Someone that derives a benefit of that organization. And so what he's talking about here is a friendship or association with worldly things. That we are attached to the world in the sense that we participate in those things. We're okay with those things. We derive a benefit from those things. And he's talking about sin of the world, the worldly things. Now, we live in the world, but as a child of God, we're not to associate with those things in the sense of participation and deriving a benefit from evil and worldly things. We're to separate ourselves from those things. We're to preach Jesus Christ. Now, when it says Jesus was a friend of sinners, he didn't go out and participate, excuse me, participate in those things. He was a friend in that he led those people of the world out of the world. He really cared about them. He was a real friend, one who delivered them from their destruction. In that sense, he was conquering his enemies. So the enemy, if you're a child of God, you're supposed to be separated from the worldly things. You're not supposed to be a companion in those things. In Psalms 110 in verse uh, 2, it says that, he would, be, that he, he would reign as a king. He is the king. It says, the Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. So he talks about this rod that would go forth out of Zion, and he would rule by this rod that would go out of Zion. Now then, Zion was the place in, in, in the Bible times. It was Jerusalem. Where the temple was, that was Zion. The presence of God was there. And he said that this rod would go out of Zion. Now, a rod was the instrument of your authority as a king. A king carried a scepter. And many times we see movies or pictures of a king, and he's holding this, this rod. And sometimes it has a jewel on the end, and uh, it's gold. You know, that's a scepter. That is the instrument of his authority. That shows that he has that he has that kingship or that rule. As long as he has that scepter, he's king. That's a rod. Now then, there are other things that are, that are qualified as a rod. For example, a shepherd carries a, a staff. That's also a rod. That shows his authority. That shepherd, he chases enemies away from the flock. He also saves the sheep sometimes with the flock. That staff or that shepherd's rod is the strength of his authority. Sometimes in the Bible, a rod is also called a sword. 
a sword, or if you take a, a warrior in a, in, in a war, he carries a sword. That is his rod. That is his strength of authority and how he wields that sword. And so we're talking about an instrument here that would be go forth from Zion, that would help Jesus rule the world in the midst of his enemies. Through this rod, he could do that. Notice in Luke 24 and verse 47, it says, And that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So when Christ became king, his rod that he would rule by would go forth starting at Jerusalem into all the world. And by this rod, the gospel of Jesus Christ and his message, he can rule in the midst of his enemies. Notice in Romans chapter 10, verse 15. And now, and, and how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not? Heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth and their words unto the end of the world. This gospel of Jesus Christ started in Jerusalem and it spread throughout all the world. It left Jerusalem. It went forth from Zion into all the world. And someone always brings up, well, what about those people in Africa? I've been to Africa twice and preached the gospel. They have the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've been there. Now then, some people don't listen to it. Some people won't receive it. And some people will be conquered by it. But you know what? Let's think about America. And sometimes we get caught up in this idea that we here in America are the ultimate, the ultimate picture of a nation. Did you know this nation hasn't existed for 300 years? Yet, <laughs> America. Now then, how many miles are we away from Jerusalem? Thousands, thousands of miles. So when we read this passage of Scripture about it going to all the world, let's think how blessed we are. That this word, this gospel of Jesus Christ left Jerusalem and 2,000 years has found its way to America. And you and I have access to it. How blessed we are through hearing the message of Jesus Christ. And then this message is preached to all the world. Now then, Jesus can rule. He can rule amongst his enemies because of this message. In Psalms 110, it says, that he is, is a king that's followed. Jesus said, my sheep, well, let's back up to verse three there in Psalms 110. The people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of thy holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. So his people will be willing in the day of thy power that he would rule among his enemies. Some translations say in the day of thy war. So as Jesus pronounces this war, 
into the world. This conquering king going about to slay the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ, it says, thy people will be willing. In other words, he's going to be followed willingly. When people understand his message, <clears throat> they understand the blessings of his kingdom. <clears throat> Pardon me. They're going to be willing to follow him. Jesus said in John 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Some people are going to hear the message of Christ and they're going, I need that. That's what I want. I want salvation. I want peace for my soul. I want to follow the King of kings and Lord of lords and they're going to hear him and they're going to follow him. Notice how willing people are going to be to follow this message. In Acts chapter 8, as Saul of Tarsus, this is the apostle Paul, before his conversion, it says, and as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. The people that escaped went everywhere. And they didn't say, oh, you need to not believe because Saul is, is persecuting these people. They went everywhere saying, you need to believe regardless of the persecution. This is the message. This is what you need to believe, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now then, lest we gloss over and go, okay, you know, the word havoc is a kind of a hard word. We think of confusion sometimes. Havoc was a persecution. That's what havoc was. And it was so bad, it says that he went into the, the houses and hailed men and women. You know what that means? That means they, he dragged them out. He went into their houses and he dragged them out of their houses and tried them. That's how bad it was. It'd be like someone breaking into your door and arresting you and dragging you to prison and persecuting you because you believe in Jesus Christ. The hailing there is not just going, how are you doing? It's breaking into your home and dragging you out because you believe in Jesus Christ. And yet those that escaped this persecution, those that got to flee from Jerusalem, they went about and said, you need to believe the gospel regardless of the persecution that's going on because it's that important. People of God will follow him. It says that he is a priest in Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that's a big topic. We could probably spend a sermon or so on Melchizedek and what this meant, but simply the order of Melchizedek was a different priesthood than the Aaronic priesthood or Levitical priesthood under Moses. Under this priesthood, God ordained that Jesus was a priest. He wasn't a priest after a lineage in a family like Aaron was and the priest that followed him. They had to be a direct descendant of the Levi tribe. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. And so there are a lot of things about this Melchizedek priesthood that is different from the Aaronic priesthood, but the one I want us to notice in this particular instance, and I think the most important of this particular study this morning is found in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1. 
For every high priest taken from among men, that is, a earthly priesthood under Melchizedek, is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he might offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So under that Levitical priesthood, priests were ordained of men to offer sacrifices and gifts to God for the sins of the people. But in chapter 9, Hebrews 9, verse 24, it says, For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And so under the Melchizedek priesthood, Jesus, he didn't just go behind a curtain, a physical curtain made with hands, but he opened the curtain of heaven and stood before God the Father and made sacrifices for you and I. He went to the Father himself. There was no in-between like the physical priests of the temple, the temple that was made with hands, but he went in to the true temple of God, the true holy of holies, and that is in the very presence of God in heaven, and he made the sacrifice for us. And so Jesus is our, our high priest. And without Jesus, we cannot offer, there is no sacrifice that can be offered for our sin. We are guilty before God without Jesus Christ because he entered into that most holy place through the veil into heaven itself. Now then, in Psalms 110, we get a picture of a conquering king. In verses five through seven, it makes a summation of this conquering king. And it says, The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of wrath of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill that place, the, the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way, and therefore shall he lift up his head. And this describes to us a king that goes through the land in the day of his war and he conquers and he judges. And everyone that raises their, their, their head toward Christ, in other words, kings, that's what it's talking about, are people in high places. And if you lift your head, if you lift your head higher than God, then you declare yourself as king, then he will... Then he will um, then he will wound your head. That's what he's talking about as he goes through this land and he conquers the world. He wounds the head over many countries. Those, those people that will lift their heads higher than Christ or oppose him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I, want, I think this gives us an understanding of what he talks about this place uh, this place of dead bodies. You know, as this conqueror goes through and he fights war and, and, and you can kind of imagine in your mind after the battle is done, there's dead bodies laying everywhere and the enemy is slain and the, and the victors are celebrating. And what does he mean by dead bodies? In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16, it says, now thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. That's the winning team. <laughs> that's, that's the side of God. We triumph with, with Christ. And make manifest the savor 
savor of his knowledge. Notice it's not savior, it is savor of his knowledge. Savor is a, a fragrance, a fragrance or an odor. And so the message of God or the knowledge of, the, of Jesus Christ has an odor. It has a fragrance. And so he says, we make manifest or known the fragrance or savor of his knowledge by us in every place. So whenever they go somewhere and preach the gospel, there is a fragrance of the gospel. You know, sometimes we step outside and we know we're, and I say this, sometimes we go back home and visit the folks in Sherman and you can smell the dirt. It's a different, it's a dark gumbo of a dirt. Here it's sandy and you can smell the difference in the, in the air, the dirt. And you know when you got close to home because you start smelling a, a different fragrance. It's not a, a dirt, it's not a, I say a dirty smell, it would be the smell of a dirt, wouldn't it? <laughs> but it's a, it's a fragrance. You can tell the different odor or savor of a dirt. It smells different. When we're coming back from home, we know when we're close to Amarillo because there's a different fragrance. It's the cattle. <laughs> we know we're getting close to home because we can smell the cattle. And so there's some knowledge that comes with, uh, or fragrance comes with knowledge. Now notice it says, in, for we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. So his knowledge, <clears throat> when we preach the gospel, there is a fragrance of Christ when we preach the gospel. In them that are saved and in them that perish. So there are people that are saved by the knowledge of God. There are people that perish by the knowledge of God. And those are two different, two different savers or two different fragrances by the same message, the message of Christ. Well, he goes on to explain this. And in them that perish, to one we are the savor or fragrance of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life, and who is sufficient for these things? When he says who is sufficient, he says this is such a magnificent thought. This is, this is one of those things of God that is just beyond human uh, composition. We couldn't put something together like that. And this Fragrance comes from the gospel, and the gospel it smells different to different people. In other words, we can preach the gospel and the saving grace to someone, and they'll go, you know, that means life to me. I'm going to obey the gospel, and it means life. I can have eternal life. There are other people that hear the gospel, and they're turned off for it. They don't want to hear it. It stinks. It smells bad. That's not what I want to do. That's not what I think is right. And so that same gospel is death to them when they don't obey the gospel. That's why the word of God is called a sharp two-edged sword. You see, it's one sword, but it cuts two different ways. It's sharp on both sides. And the word of God, the gospel, smells sweet to some, but it smells putrid to others. It smells like life to some that want to obey it and have eternal life, that accept its message, and it smells like death to others who reject it, and it smells repugnant to them. 
Jesus is a conquering king. And he goes through the land and he reigns in the midst of his enemies with this rod, the rod of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That rod will judge all men, both heathen and his people. And it will smell like life to some and death to others. And Jesus goes through the land of this world and he reigns among his enemies and he's conquering those that obey and he's leaving behind dead bodies that reject his word. In Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, a very similar passage as it describes the King of kings and Lord of lords as he conquers the world with his message. And he says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat on him is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes are filled whereas flame of fire in his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that, had, that no man knew, but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations." And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. And he hath of his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is John's revelation as Jesus revealed this thing to him. And he wrote this down. And he wrote this scene that's very similar to what King David wrote in Psalm chapter 110 that Jesus is conquering the world through his message, the sharp sword that goes out and he conquers the world. Now, some people will put this, they'll say, well, that big battle is yet to come. That big battle is not to the end of the world, and I'm going to tell you something, that big battle is happening right now. That battle that Christ is going through the land and conquering the world is happening today. It was happening yesterday, and if he doesn't come tonight, it will happen tomorrow. The word of God will be going through the land, and it will be giving life to some and death to others because they reject it. And he will trample like a winepress using the fierceness of the almighty God. He's going through the land now. He's reigning as king of kings and lord of lords now. You see, if he doesn't have a kingdom, he's not a king. He might be a wannabe king. If he's not a king, he doesn't have dominion or authority. But God the Father put him on his right hand and he gave him dominion. And he gave him honor and glory. And he gave him a kingdom to reign over. And so when Jesus ascended into the clouds in the first century, he sat on the right hand of God, and he is king of kings and lord of lords then. And he has been king of kings and lord of lords since then. He is king of kings and lord of lords today. And he is reigning in the midst of his enemies. And he is fighting with that rod, that sword that goes out to all nations. Now I want to go back to verse 3 as we close this morning. Verse 3, it says, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. 
In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. This is a wonderful passage because it talks about the people that are willing. The people that are willing to follow in the day of this war can enjoy the beauties of holiness from, from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. You know, when we go out in the early mornings in the spring and there's dew on the grass and everything smells fresh and renewed, the people that are willing to follow in this war can have that renewing, that refreshing. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 19 they say, it says this, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you. So when you obey the gospel, when you repent of your sins and you're converted and your sins are blotted out, you can have this refreshing that comes from the Lord, and only he has it. You know, men... Mankind tries all kinds of ways to refresh their mind, to get relief from guilt. And we try all kinds of things. We read all kinds of books. We see all kinds of, of doctors to get some kind of relief from our, our mental anguish. And we need to do like David in Psalms 109 and recognize we're weak. And we can't do that. And we need to trust in God to redeem us, to deliver our souls from our enemies. And we do that by following him, by obeying the gospel. And we can have that refreshing. We can have our conscience clean. And we can start just like the dew of the, mo the morning, just like a new life. That's the rebirth when we obey his gospel. And then we follow him, the conquering king, to help him in his kingdom. If you're subject to that gospel this morning, we offer an invitation to you to participate in the refreshing of the Lord through obedience to the gospel. If you're here today and you're a child of God and you need uh, prayers of strength and encouragement, we, we encourage you that we're here to pray with you and for you to help you in any way we can. If you'll come as we stand and sing the song that's been selected. <laughs>